Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Uh, about five years ago, um, a little indie film called First Reformed came out. Did anybody see this movie? Like three of us. Great. Yeah. It was niche. It was a little niche. Um, it stars Ethan Hawke as a small town minister in upstate New York named Reverend Toller. And he tries to shepherd this tiny little church while battling from despair, um, his own personal issues, and then just kind of the state of the world. And the only reason this tiny church that he pastors can continue paying his salary and keeping the doors open is because it's sponsored by this large mega church just up the road, uh, pastored by Reverend Joel Jeffers, who has played perfectly by Cedric the Entertainer. Um, just, just an incredible performance. Um, now, it's not what I would call a feel-good movie. It's pretty dark, actually. Um, but it's one of those films that really makes you think. And it's one of those films that really stays with you. It stayed with me like long after I finished watching it. This has been especially true for me with this one particular scene. And here's the picture of it. So leave that up for a second. This is Reverend Toller sitting across from Esther. She's an employee at the mega church that sponsors Reverend Toller's congregation and pays his salary. And as I said earlier, he's struggling with despair due to a number of things. And she asks him what's wrong right here. They're actually sitting in the kind of cafeteria at the mega church having lunch. And, and she's asking what's, what's wrong. And he kind of shrugs her off and he's like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. But she presses and she starts kind of listing off all the possible things that you're upset about. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And that's when you find out that Reverend Toller and Esther had previously dated, which is actually against the rules of the megachurch. You weren't allowed to date anybody on the staff, including people at Reverend Toller's little church. So Esther says, is that what's wrong? You think what we did together was a sin? And Reverend Toller looks up and he says this, no, I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. And that line has stuck with me more than almost any from any movie I've seen in the last decade. You see, it comes to my mind when I hear people elevating some man-made understanding of morality while completely ignoring injustice and oppression in our midst. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. It comes to my mind when I think back on the church I grew up in, where the pastor would often yell from the pulpit about the deterioration of our society um, because of all the, the sinful things like, like rock music or Disney movies or the lack of prayer in schools, all while unbeknownst to most people in the congregation, the denomination that we were a part of was covering up hundreds of cases of abuse by clergy. I look back on that and I think I've seen enough real sin to know the difference between those things. Today is the last week of a teaching series called Fractured, What Sin Breaks, Jesus Restores. And over the last few weeks, we've attempted to discern what Reverend Toller calls real sin. 
which we have kind of defined as anything that prevents shalom. And if that term for you is new, shalom is a Hebrew word, which means abundant goodness and flourishing in all things and between all things. Shalom was what defined God's very good creation in the beginning in Eden. And it's what will define God's, God's kind of restored creation in the new heaven and new earth at the end. So sin is anything that gets in the way of God's design, of shalom, flourishing, abundance for us and for creation. And this is why we're freed up to actually say things like God hates sin, not because God is some legalist holding every human to an impossible moral standard or because God flies off the handle in anger anytime we do anything wrong. No, God hates sin because sin hurts us. God hates sin because Sin hurts God's kids. God hates to see shalom get broken because we all get caught up in that brokenness. And since God's desire for everything in God's creation is to experience shalom and abundance and flourishing, God stands opposed to anything that gets in the way of that. So last Sunday, we talked about this real sin and how it really made Jesus angry especially when people used power, privilege, and religion to hurt folks rather than to help them, to oppress people rather than to liberate them. Now, we talked about last week is how that's true on an individual level. And we really were trying to be introspective last week, talking about our own issues, our own sin, our own complicity in the brokenness of our world. How have we added to it when we could have alleviated it? But it's also true on a corporate level. We call this systemic sin. And so today we are wrapping up this series called Fractured about sin by talking about larger sin issues that exist. You see, systemic sin exists because people who use power, privilege, and religion to hurt others rather than to help them, they don't exist in a vacuum. Many of them have been a part of building sinful systems and structures that are still around today. Now, for example... If an individual was racist, they would have the power to hurt other individuals based on skin color, right? They could give dirty looks, they could use racial slurs, they could even attack someone violently because of this sin of racism that they inhabit personally. And all of that is awful, we all recognize that. But what if that same person who has chosen to give in to the sin of racism is in charge of constructing laws? or building companies, or writing policies, that's a completely different level of power, right? So if a group of racist people create a bunch of laws and companies and policies, what are those laws and companies and policies going to be? Racist. You can say it, that's fine. Now what happens if all of those people die? And decades go by and society progresses to become much less racist overall, but those laws aren't changed. Or if some of the policies get changed, but not all of them. Or if the businesses have new leaders, but the structures underneath them remain the same. Those original people who chose the sin of racism are long gone, but the sinful systems and structures that they built remain intact. Unless you think this is some just theoretical exercise, this is exactly what has happened in our country and around the world and in many of our churches. 
See, people who chose to sinfully use power, privilege, and religion to, help, to hurt people rather than to help them built a whole bunch of systems and structures that are still in place today. And these systems and structures continue yielding unequal outcomes based on things like age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, disability, citizenship status, and many other things. So the question becomes, as followers of Jesus, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? This is not an easy question to answer, especially in our cultural moment. And especially considering that many professing Christians believe very different things about systemic sin, right? Some think we shouldn't get involved. We just need to kind of let God handle that. We just do our best as individuals. We can't get involved in these broader things. That's God's department. Others think we should burn it all down. (laughs) Every system, every structure, burn it to the ground, start completely over. And still others might deny that systemic sin exists at all. Well, I'm here to say systemic sin does exist. That's not up for debate. But understanding what we do as followers of Jesus is complex. It's hard. And I think we fall into a trap of just kind of jumping into a category, jumping into a specific way, and not actually engaging with the complexities of what is happening in our world. And I think we do an injustice to this when we do that. But I also think sometimes we overcomplicate it. You see, systemic sin isn't new, and followers of Jesus have been fighting against it since the very beginning of the church in the first century. So this morning, we're actually going to spend our time looking at one of those stories recorded in Scripture and see how some of the first Christians dealt with systemic sin in their midst. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. If you'd like to turn there, uh, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 16. So let me set the scene for us as you guys turn there. Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles, and it's written um, by a guy named Luke. Now, you might also know Luke from another famous book in the Bible that he wrote. Does anyone know what that one was called? Just laughs. Luke, yep, yep. That one was called Luke. Um, He became a little bit less self-centered on the second book. You know, he was like, I'm going to name this one Luke, but then I'm going to call this next one. I'm just kidding. He didn't name him. That, That happened much later. Luke was a doctor and a historian known for his outstanding writing skills. And he's also a close friend of the persecutor of Christians turned church planter named Paul. The first half of the book of Acts is on the first church in Jerusalem and kind of what was happening there, how it got started, what was going on. And then the second half is focused on Paul's early ministry after he becomes a Christian and kind of takes the gospel, the message of Jesus out from Jerusalem to a bunch of different other places. Our story today takes place in the Roman-occupied city of Philippi, where Paul, Luke, and another early church leader named Silas were sharing about the love of Jesus with anyone who would listen. So they're walking around Philippi, talking about Jesus, sharing this message. The first person to hear the message and decide to follow Jesus was a woman named Lydia, who would go on to start and lead, actually, the very first church in Europe. After their time with Lydia, Paul, Luke, and Silas are still walking around, still sharing this message, and they encounter an enslaved woman afflicted by this demonic spirit, which seemingly causes her to be able to predict the future. Her enslavers send her out every day to make money for them by fortune-telling. 
After being around her, though, for a few days in the city, Paul cast the demon out of her. But when her enslavers hear what happened, as you can imagine, they are not happy. They have just lost a significant income source, and so they get very mad. Here's verse 19. Acts 16, verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and throwing and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in on the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them That's important there. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Then the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This was not mob violence, right? They were brought before elected officials or appointed officials, magistrates, Romans, and then the Romans ordered them to be beaten, flogged, and jailed, right? This was all legal. This was official. This was sanctioned. So even though Paul and Silas did nothing wrong, in fact, they actually helped someone who had this desperate need, they are unjustly beaten and illegally thrown in jail. Now, the question is why? Why did this happen to them? Well, first and foremost, right, it's because they disrupted this kind of sinful economic practice and it cost a rich person some money and those rich people got very mad. About that. That's kind of reason number one. That's the real reason they're dragged in front of the authorities. But what excuse do the Romans use to justify beating and imprisoning them? Remember what they said? Quote, these men are Jews and throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So we see here Race, religion, and citizenship status are all weaponized officially against Paul and Silas by powerful people in order to beat them, jail them, oppress them. But again, it's not just individuals who are sinful in this story. These systems and structures that existed in the first century Roman world were prejudiced. They were unjust. They were sinful. And that's why this escalates from just some disagreement on the street between the enslavers and the disciples to beatings and jail times officially sanctioned for Paul and Silas. As Dominique Gilliard writes in his wonderful book, The Subversive Witness, Acts 16, 16 through 40 is a story about police brutality, a corrupt criminal justice judicial system that is more committed to money than justice and devout disciples who refuse to turn a blind eye to injustice within their midst. And we're about to see what it really looks like for Paul and Silas to take this sinful system on. So Paul and Silas go to prison. Not long after they get locked up, you may remember the story, God performs this miracle. He sends this earthquake, it opens the jail cells. But because Paul and Silas knew that escaping would only mean more violence, and it would actually end up meaning the execution of the guard that was supposed to be watching them, they decided to stay in their cell. And they actually encouraged all the other prisoners to stay in their cells, too. And so there's this incredible moment where the guard is actually, he takes out his sword, he's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, no, 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 we're all still here. Nobody's left. And the jailer is so moved by this gracious act that he decides to become a follower of Jesus. Paul and Silas pray with him. It's this beautiful part of the story. 
And then the next day, they are set to be released. But Paul and Silas refuse to leave the jail again. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul was pretty awesome sometimes. Suspect sometimes too, but also pretty awesome sometimes. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. This was new information, right? They didn't know that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. That was Lydia's church that she had there in her home. So the Roman authorities, right, they changed their tune pretty quickly after finding out that Silas and Paul are actually Roman citizens. Here's Dominique Gilliard again on this passage. The magistrates only cared about their abuse of Paul and Silas when they realized they were Roman citizens. This is privilege. And privilege aborts justice, leading judicial systems, power structures, and governments to treat a person or group preferentially with more compassion and dignity than others because of their citizenship, in this case, class, surname, social capital, sexual orientation, religion, or an aspect of their embodiment, race, gender, ethnicity, able-bodiedness, attractiveness, and more. Injustice. Paul and Silas knew this was what was happening. And they also both knew that the reason they were illegally arrested and beaten was because the Roman authorities did not know about their citizenship status. And it's also important to point out they weren't surprised by their treatment, right? This didn't come as a shock to them. They knew how much anti-Semitism and prejudice existed in the Roman judicial system. So now the question becomes, why didn't they immediately announce their Roman citizenship when they were brought before the magistrates? That would have ended this whole thing, right? It's because they knew that as people with some level of power and privilege, they had a responsibility to fight against the sinful systems and structures. And what better way to do that than by exposing them from the inside? by allowing themselves to be the recipients of unjust treatment. The same treatment they had no doubt seen so many of their sisters and brothers experience over and over again. They allowed themselves to be beaten, illegally arrested, jailed, all so that they could demonstrate just how sinful the systems and structures really are. Now, while it's true, like we all talked about last week, that Jesus gets angry when people use power, privilege, and religion to hurt people rather than help them. The inverse of that statement is also true. Jesus is pleased when we use power, privilege, and religion to help people rather than to hurt them, to liberate people rather than to oppress them. And here's something, really, something else really important about this story. Did Paul and Silas write these unjust laws? No. 
Did they build these sinful systems and structures? No. But as Roman citizens who benefited from them at the expense of others, they knew it was their responsibility to use whatever power or privilege they had to fight against these sinful systems and structures. See, often the reaction from Christians to systemic sin in our world today is something like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't there when these things were built. I've never oppressed anyone. I've never enslaved anyone. I've never mistreated anyone. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not hateful in any way. So why is it my responsibility? Why, why do I have to deal with this? And while it may be true that you've never mistreated anyone, or that you're not racist or sexist or hateful, that doesn't preclude us from fighting against these sinful systems and structures that still exist. In her seminal book called Cast, Isabel Wilkerson compares our country, America, to an old house with both beauty and brokenness within her walls. Here's what she says. Not one of us was here when this house was built. Not one of us. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or the joists, but they are ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. None of us were here when this country was built. None of us are here when the church was founded. None of us were with Martin Luther when he came and pounded on the door, right? And Protestantism became, came into existence. None of us were there. We didn't build this, but we're here now, right? And we have a responsibility as the people who occupy this home currently. And I believe this is true for everyone, but it is especially true for Christians because we have been called by God to fight against sinful systems and structures wherever they might exist, in our country, in our communities, in our churches. Paul and Silas understood and practiced this truth by doing exactly that and giving us a model for how we can do this really important justice work. Reflecting on this passage, Yale Divinity School professor and theologian Willie James Jennings says this, Paul will not keep silent. An injustice has been done against him and Silas, and they will not go quietly into freedom, relieved that their ordeal is over, because more is at stake than just their freedom. This is a matter of justice. When followers of Jesus see injustice, we have a responsibility to use whatever power or privilege we might have to expose it and to end it. When we see people being hurt and oppressed by systemic sin, we have a responsibility to intervene. And if we choose not to intervene, if we choose to continue benefiting from sinful systems and structures rather than fighting against them, the hard truth is that we become complicit in that sin 
by turning our eyes away, by pretending we can't see, or by making excuses that it's not our fault, that we weren't here, that we've never done anything wrong. We become complicit in these things. Now, this looks different for everyone. Fighting against systemic sin looks different. But I want to share two stories about how we are doing it here at Restore. Because as Christians and as a Christian church, we have a responsibility to push back against systemic sin anywhere, as I said. But it's especially true when that systemic sin is found inside of Christian structures. The first one happened back at the very beginning of our church, about seven years ago. I shared a story when I preached a sermon back in April that we were originally a part of a denomination, but we were kicked out for fully including LGBTQ plus people in our church. But what I didn't tell you is that we weren't kicked out immediately. We were put under investigation by that denomination for baptizing a queer person and including a queer person in our kid dedication ceremony. And at first, the denominational leadership, they really just pressured us to resign. They said, it would be so much easier if you would just leave rather than having to go through this process of being kicked out. Because the process would entail hearings and testimonies and countless hours of meetings. They even said it could possibly include legal action against us to repay any funding that they'd given us to help get the church started. But you see, we knew we hadn't actually broken any rules. There wasn't anything in any of the doctrinal statements about LGBTQ plus theology or practice. So our leadership talked about what to do, and we decided that we were going to make them kick us out. So our leadership came together, went back, told them, said, we're not going to resign. We don't feel like we did anything wrong. And so we'll submit to this process and we'll go through it. Now, we felt like just leaving quietly and allowing this to happen to other churches and other queer folks was not good stewardship of the position that we were in. So the investigation began. It took about a year and a half to complete. The threats of legal action were just bluster, but they were absolutely right about all the hearings and the meetings. And by the end of it, they were actually forced to write a policy which honestly stated their position, their discriminatory position against the LGBTQ plus community before they were able to kick us out. Now, listen, that may not sound exactly like what Paul and Silas did in a Roman prison, right? And it's not. But I'll tell you that I'm proud of what we did because it means that no other church or individual is going to fall victim to a denomination falsely claiming that everyone is welcome only to find out that they actually are not. And the second story is actually one that you all were a part of today when we ordained Lindsay and Jamie and Christy. Because you see, if you're a woman here with any level of church ministry experience, this won't surprise you. But all three of them have been told numerous times that they are unqualified to be a pastor because of their gender. And even though there is absolutely nothing in the Bible about the role of pastor or preacher being gendered, and there are numerous examples throughout Scripture of women who preached and pastored and led God's people. Lydia, the first church planter in Europe, in our story today. Even though there's nothing in Scripture about this, even though it seems as though Scripture actually promotes and supports, and that Jesus promotes and supports this, that is the experience of these three women. 
And the thing is that this sexist sin hasn't just come from individuals. It comes from systems and structures within American Christianity, entire traditions and denominations who refuse to recognize the inherent value and God-given abilities of women. And you know what? I know a bunch of people in those spaces who do not have a misogynistic bone in their bodies. In fact, I know many of them who believe their organization's beliefs about women are sinful, but they don't push back. They don't speak up. They don't make waves because they're worried about their own status and privilege being damaged. I once saw the name of a seminary professor that I really admired as a signer on a document that said horrible things about women and queer people. And I I sent him a message and I asked him, how could you have signed something like that? Because I knew him well enough to know that he didn't believe the things that were in the statement. And do you know what he said in response? This is a quote. One reason I signed it is because I didn't want to be dismissed or pushed out for not signing it. My friends, it is not enough for us to claim that we don't individually use power, privilege, or religion to hurt people rather than help them when we are participating in systems and structures that do exactly that. Paul and Silas show us that Christians cannot be people who ignore and thereby tacitly approve the systemic sin around us. We must leverage whatever power or privilege we have to stand against it. Here's Dominique Gilliard one more time. As followers of Christ, they, Paul and Silas, could not be content knowing that the justice system was just for Roman citizens and not for all people. This passage challenges Christians to develop eyes to see the injustices around us and learn how we can intervene on behalf of our oppressed neighbors, suffer with them when necessary, and leverage our privilege to uproot oppression in our midst. There's a time when complacency becomes complicity. There's a time when ignoring the problem becomes approving of it as the great abolitionist William Wilberforce famously said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. We collectively may choose to look the other way, but we can never say that we did not know. I wanna leave you with one final story, and it's one that has a profound impact and shaping of my commitment to fight against systemic sin, and I hope it encourages you in a similar way. See, one place in Christianity's history where we can see fighting against systemic sin in the name of Jesus on full display is the civil rights movement. Almost all the leaders in this movement were Christians. Many of them were clergy, including the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King had an incredible gift for teaching scripture in ways that encouraged people to partner with God in his work against sinful systems and structures in our world. And one way that he often did this was through the story of the Good Samaritan. And he used that as an illustration of what it looks like to tangibly love our neighbors, much like Jesus used that as a story of how we are supposed to tangibly love our neighbors, especially those who are really different from us. But even beyond all those sermons, what has stuck with me for years is this quote from Dr. King about what it looks like not only to fight against individual sin, but systemic sin too. Here's what he says. 
I think the Good Samaritan is a great individual. I, of course, like and respect the Good Samaritan, but I don't want to just be a Good Samaritan. I am tired of picking up people along the Jericho Road. I am tired of seeing people battered and bruised and bloody, injured and jumped on along the Jericho Roads of life. This road is dangerous. I don't want to pick up anyone else along this Jericho road. I want to fix the Jericho road. I want to pave the Jericho road, add street lights to the Jericho road, and make the Jericho road safe for everybody. There are times when it is our task to stop along the Jericho road and pick up the person who has been beaten and bloodied and bruised. And there are times when it is our job to step back and ask, why do people keep getting hurt on this road? Why do we keep stumbling upon people who've been beaten and oppressed and pushed down in the exact same kind of ways? We have to interrogate the systems and structures of a road which would yield such sinful results. Jesus said the most important thing in the world is to love God and love our neighbor. And loving our neighbor means picking them up off the side of the road when they've been hurt, but it also means why asking this, asking why this particular road keeps hurting people. True love of neighbor is more than just helping the oppressed. True love of neighbor is fighting against the sinful systems and structures which continue to oppress them. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm really grateful for the story and witness of Paul and Silas. I'm grateful for their courage their decision to not go quietly when they were released, their decision to wait on an announcement of their citizenship status, their decision to step forward and fight against the systemic sin that existed in their world on behalf of their neighbors. And I pray that we would take a cue from them this morning, that we would be shaped by your word and scripture as we work through it today. You would make us into people who not only stop and help people on the sides of life's road as they are hurt and struggling, but we step back and we ask why this particular road keeps hurting people. And we push back against that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.